0: Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Today, we have with us a world-renowned economist, a professor at Dartmouth College, um, who's also held faculty positions at Harvard University, the Copenhagen Business School, Washington State University, and the University of Wisconsin. He holds a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in sociology. Most recently, he is the author of What Capitalism Needs, Forgotten Lessons of Great Economists. Please welcome to the show, Dr. John Campbell. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Firstly, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself, your field of study, as well as your latest book.
1: Yeah, well, I'm actually a sociologist by training, although um, I do a lot of comparative political economy. Um, and the most recent book, as you mentioned, is uh, entitled What Capitalism Needs, Forgotten Lessons of Great Economists, Um which is written by myself and my co author, another sociologist who, who teaches at McGill University. His name is John Hall. Um, and this is a book that we've been um, thinking about on and off in, in various contexts for years, and we decided it was time to write it.
0: All right. So, can you tell us a bit more about the thesis of the book, um, what, what it discusses, um, and how it's relevant to, to current society?
1: Sure. So, the basic argument what capitalism needs. It needs three things. Uh, One is obvious, it needs markets, private property, uh, profit-seeking individuals, entrepreneurs, and all the rest. But in addition to that, it needs two things uh, that many economists tend to overlook or sidestep, uh, but that sociologists like myself and my co-author think are very important for capitalism to be successful. One is uh, a state that has sufficient capacities to manage the ups and downs of capitalism. And specifically, we talk about two things in the book. One are institutional capacities. So the right set of policy tools, sufficient resources, and so forth, so that when problems arise, the state is in a position that it can act uh, if if it deems that action is necessary. And the second thing, uh, equally important, is that states need to have uh, certain intellectual capacities, the capacity to learn, the capacity to be flexible, uh, so that again, when problems arise, they can make adjustments. And if those adjustments don't work, they can make adjustments for those adjustments and so on and so forth. So capitalism needs markets. It needs states with sufficient uh, institutional and intellectual capacity. And it needs a a certain amount of social cohesion. Uh, It needs a certain amount of equality, not perfect equality, of course. Uh, It needs uh, uh, possibilities for upward mobility. uh, And it needs a certain amount of voice for people to be included in decision making. And of course, that that bleeds back into the state capacity issue. What we find interesting uh, when we read through some of the old economics literature is that everything that I have just said has been called for by some of the really brilliant economists of the past, not the least of which is Adam Smith, who had a lot to say in The Wealth of Nations about the need for states to provide infrastructure and human capital and constraints on monopoly and so forth. Uh, He also had a lot to say about equality. He famously said that... uh, societies with the highest profit rate are the quickest to head towards ruin to paraphrase what he said so he believed that the possibilities for mobility um, were very important uh, and that without them you know the labor force sort of gives up throws up their hands and um, innovation declines productivity declines and, and all the rest of it he was also a proponent of progressive taxation So you don't have to take our word for this. Uh, You can look to Smith and some of the other great economists of the past that we talk about in the book.
0: Okay, so just to get a bit of a discussion going um, in the preface of the book, you speak about many of the issues observed under a capitalist system, such as issues with trade agreements, economic problems caused by Britain's decision to leave the European Union and so on. So many would argue that such issues have little to do with capitalism itself and are largely the results of government intervention in the economy. So capitalism was, at least as I understand it, founded on the laissez-faire idea that governments should not intervene in the market except in matters of public safety and to protect um, property rights. So a true capitalist system um, with little government intervention would mean that international trade flows freely, unimpeded by tariffs and regulations. So no agreements would be necessary, which means no trade wars and so on. It would also mean that government spending and power would be at an absolute minimum ending issues with erratic leaders, um, large amounts of um, foreign debt and so forth. Um, so in this way, um, I would see many of the issues that you talk about um, with capitalism in the current landscape as, as being a drastic re- reduction in the size and scope of the government itself. So would you agree or disagree with such a solution and, and to what extent?
1: Well, you, you've raised a whole bundle of issues there. I, I can't add them all. Um, but in terms of the Brexit situation, you know, Brexit in, in terms of your comment, it's a little bit ironic, right? Because um, Brexit was basically a withdrawal of of Britain from the European Union, the old common market. Um, and it has now put itself in a position where it is restricted trade. It is, it is in a situation where it's had to renegotiate all kinds of trade agreements. Um, And it's not been kind, at least so far, uh, to economic performance on the island. Um, And not to mention the fact that it's created all sorts of turmoil and problems in terms of uh, the situation with Ireland, Northern Ireland in particular. Um, So, uh, you know, Brexit, in my view, was an unfortunate thing, uh, probably a mistake in the long run. You've seen, uh, particularly in the financial sector, financial industry movements of capital from Britain to the continent. Um, uh, and, and there have been other indicators as well as uh, the problems that this has created. Um, we have a long way to go to see how it all plays out. Of course, this is a recent phenomenon. Um, but I would I would add um, one other thing about your, your historical take on the origins of capitalism. There has never been really true laissez-faire in a market economy you you go all the way back um hundreds of years uh, when markets first started to emerge in europe um you could not have markets without permission from the crown the crown provided protection as you point out uh the crown provided uh, a number of guarantees for people operating in the market so in my view it's just uh historically incorrect that you you can have a market system that's viable without state intervention the two the two are are joined at the hip have always been joined at the hip the question of course is what's the best way to join them at the hip and and um we could certainly talk about that if you want to
0: yeah so um the, the, the position that um, most neoclassical or Austrian economic um, pr- proponents of neoclassical or Austrian economics take on on that matter, is that the, the government has two proper functions um, when they intervene in the market. One is to protect public safety. Um, so. Just an example of that would be um, like, for example, um, you see traffic lights on the road or, you know, um, companies can't, you know, dump poison in in their products and, and sell them to you. Um, so that's, that's an issue of public safety. And then the second thing is the pr- protection of property rights. So, um, you know, the, the enforcement of laws regarding, for example, if I sign a contract and you provide me with a service, I agree to pay you. Um, then you have some sort of recourse if, if I um, fail to do so. So those, those are the the proper functions of government. Um, I, I wanted to get your take on what you would view um, as, you know, the proper role of government in, in a free market society.
1: Well, I mean, there are different ways you can you can go at this. Um, as I said before, I'm, I'm um, familiar with the literature on comparative political economy and I've contributed a fair amount to that. So it's a question of what type of capitalism do you want and what are the priorities uh, of that capitalist system? So for example, uh, in the Scandinavian countries, For political reasons, they have prioritized relatively low levels of inequality, and that's led to the creation of large welfare states, um, high levels of taxation, and so forth. But that has not stifled economic growth or productivity. If you look at, um, for example, the World Economic Forum competitiveness rankings, you always see the Scandinavian countries in and among the top 10 or so. on the other hand, the United States is also almost always up there in the top 10, but it is a very different approach to doing capitalism. One with, uh, comparatively speaking, a much more meager kind of welfare state, uh, less state intervention along the lines that the Scandinavians uh, have pursued. Although I would add one very important caveat to that, and that is that at least since World War II, Uh, The federal government in the United States has poured tremendous amount of money into research and development in all sorts of industries that have facilitated um, tremendous innovation and growth, largely through military spending, but not entirely through military spending, either through grants, contracts, public-private partnerships, uh, all sorts of different ways. So even in the United States, which is often held up Uh, As a paragon of of capitalism, um, with relatively little state intervention, there is still a tremendous amount of state intervention that the economy has benefited from historically.
0: So that's an interesting point and and one that I was um, hoping to talk about um, that you brought up uh, regarding um, inequality. So you indicate in the preface, as well as a lot in your prior work, um, that inequality is is an issue economically. So most countries with the lowest um, economic inequality are exceptionally poor, such as Afghanistan, whereas many of the most prosperous nations, where even the poor have a quality of life well above the world average, such as the United States, um, have extremely high economic inequality. And um, I'm glad you brought up the the Scandinavian example, because I think that's an important distinction we have to draw um, between between income inequality and wealth inequality. So um, Sweden ranks towards the, the um, top of the world in terms of how unequal they are um, with wealth. Uh, I think Denmark is also there in the top five. Scandinavian countries, although people um, have relatively um, a, a relatively low um, inequality in terms of how much they make an um, in income, they have one of the highest rates of billionaires per capita there's extremely high wealth inequality um, drastically more than um, what we see anywhere else in the world in scandinavia so i wanted to know um <coughs> Sorry, yet um Scandinavian countries still have extremely high standards of living, even for the lower classes. So I wanted to know why you view economic inequality, um, and, and if you do, um, this may just be my assumption, um, as as an issue rather than just a byproduct of, of a wealthy and, and healthy economy.
1: Well, I mean, it's both cause and effect to a certain extent. I mean, you're right that the wealth inequality in the Scandinavian countries is quite high, but that's got a lot to do with the housing market and the the um, uh, the cost of buying a house in those countries. In fact, unlike the United States, most people um, in Scandinavian countries do not own their homes. They rent or they have uh, basically condominium-style um, situations. Um, wealth inequality in the United States is extraordinary, but so is income inequality in the United States. And And really the important metric here is pre- and post-tax income inequality. Um, income inequality pre-tax in the Scandinavian countries is considerable. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but post-tax inequality, given the welfare state, um, is, is uh, much less significant than it is in the United States. It's interesting. I, I um, And of course, the flip side of that is that they pay a tremendous amount of taxes. First time I was in Denmark uh, back in, I think it was 1993, I was at a research institute and we sat around a table one one afternoon having lunch. And I was studying taxes at the time. And I asked people at the table, what do you think about the fact that your, your tax rate is so high, substantially higher than pretty much any place else in the advanced capitalist world? And they grumbled at first. And then without any prodding from me, they started to generate a list of things that they got back from the government in exchange for high levels of taxation. And, you know, it's a long list, including education, preschool up through and including college and graduate school, if you choose to go there, clean environment, great transportation system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It's a different way of organizing capitalism. Uh, It works for them. The way we organize it in the United States works for us. Um, But the level of income inequality in the United States troubles me deeply.
0: Yeah. um, And that's that's something that I I wanted to ask you about um, is is why why that is so, Um, because obviously the Scandinavian model, um, we can um, dive deeper into that. Um, But the the essence of the Scandinavian model, um, which you talked about, is that the tax rates are not just high on the top one percent or the top 10 percent tax rates are extraordinarily high across the board. Um, the top marginal tax rate kicks in at just one and a half times the the, the median income, so pretty much anyone um, 60th, 70th percentile in income or, or higher is paying the the top marginal tax rate, um, and then they have extremely high uh, value added tax, which is a sales tax, um, which is regressive in nature, so um, it, 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 um, the, it, it disproportionately affects um, lower income individuals. Um, so. Again, that's that's something that um, is relevant to the Scandinavian model. We have a bit of a different issue um, here in the United States. Um, and I wouldn't hesitate to call it an issue. Um, the fact that so many people have uh, disproportionately high uh, levels of wealth and that wealth is highly concentrated at the top. I think um, when you have um, tons of, a, a large portion, I think something like 94% of the wealth of the top 0.1% um, is held as equity in private businesses. So it's not, um, you know, just a hidden Scrooge McDuck style in a basement somewhere. Um, you know, it's it's um, it's either being invested um, or it's, you know, it's being um, saved in, in a bank, which is then lending it out um, to, to other uh, other um, borrowers. So it's, it's playing a very productive role in the economy. The wealthy have historically um, been the driving force in angel investment, job creation and all sorts of things. So I wanted to know why. You view income inequality at all, um, despite how, however extreme it may be as an issue.
1: Well, um, let's talk about the, um, the tax reform under the Trump administration. Uh, the biggest part of that and the permanent part of that is the corporate tax. Um, the tax was passed for the eight months eight months, eight quarters, I believe it's the eight quarters following the implementation of the tax, the corporate rate of investment in the United States actually declined. supposed to do the opposite. And one of the reasons that happened was because uh, the the tax break given to corporations was a freebie. There were no strings attached and so corporations could do whatever they wanted with that money. Many of the Standard & Poor's top 500 companies chose not to invest most of that money, but rather buy back stocks and do other things with it that were not particularly productive from uh, from uh, uh, an investment standpoint. Um, so again, what matters here is not just the level of inequality, but the institutional mechanisms that precipitate it and are designed to correct it if possible. And that's why keeping this in a a cross national perspective uh, is really important because countries can do it in different ways. And they have different results, which is, again, why I said in the beginning, you know, you can have different types of capitalism. uh, And they, you know, the type that you choose depends upon what your priorities are, both politically and economically.
0: Well, um, certainly, certainly an interesting response. Um, So I wanted to move on, get your take on some of the issues that have made um, headlines in the news this week. Um, So the first one being proposed taxes on unrealized capital gains. Um, So... Um, that especially considering the impact it could have um, on many, on the financial planning of many um, middle-class American families. I wanted to know um, your opinion, um, especially in, in a comparative sense, whether or not um, a government is ever justified in taxing wealth or profits that have not yet been realized.
1: Well, I don't know the details of that, um, but I do know that roughly, well, what is it? 80% of uh of all those sorts of investments that you're referring to are held by the top what and 20% of the American population. Uh, so this is not this is not a t- tax that is going to affect a wide swath of people in the United States. Um, I don't know what the tax rates are, so I can't really speak uh, with too much authority to how I how I think this affects you know the middle class, so to speak. Um, But I don't have any problem with government taxation as long as the tax revenues are used for productive purposes for the social for the social good and that's the rub oftentimes that's where the politics comes into the situation.
0: And yeah and and that's where I was headed um, here as well, so you talk a lot about. um... Tax revenue and its usage more more so than um, what it takes out of the economy, um, what what it's used for and how the the government um, actually puts that puts that capital to to productive use. Um, so I think this is where our, our political system is especially relevant because often what's politically advantageous um, is uh, does not um, co- um, coincide with what's economically um, advantageous. So. Um, Especially with um, bills in Congress, we have a lot of pork barrel legislation, Um, politicians trying to appease voters in their respective districts um, tacking on endless amounts of legislation. Um, You know, that's why we get four or five thousand page bills um, with tons of bureaucratic spending, um, all sorts of waste um, that goes unchecked so um do you see how would you reconcile the the political disadvantages it's it's very unpopular for a lot of things that that make sense economically or are extremely unpopular with voters you know cutting some social programs that may be wasteful and unnecessary those sorts of things um, make politicians incredibly unpopular but they they might make sense economically so I think that's a That's a bit of a problem area that, um, you know, a lot of the people that I've spoken to have really um, struggled to balance. So given that, um, would you think that um, would you agree that a better solution um, would be to leave that capital in the hands of the market um, and, and to reduce taxation overall or to continue down this road?
1: Well, I mean, if we're talking about the United States, clearly there's a lot of waste in government. No one is going to deny that. Uh, I would add quickly, however, that there's also a lot of waste on the corporate side. So nobody gets away clean here, in my in my opinion. Um, You know, part of the problem if we're just going to talk about the United States is the political system. And again, if you compare it to a lot of European countries, uh, Denmark is the one that I know the best. They have a very different political system. Some would call it a negotiated economy where there's a tremendous amount of input. From labor, from all sorts of civic organizations. Um, you know, they had routinely have anywhere from a half a dozen to a dozen political parties represented in the parliament, um, an outstanding commission system, which is used to study all sorts of economic and other problems to try and figure out what the smart fix would be. Uh, we do not have an institution institutional setup like that in the United States, politically speaking. And so we have, we have the problems that you that you point to. Um, on the other hand, it, it strikes me as curious, you know, the, the Biden infrastructure bill that, that just passed on, um, on Friday uh, with almost no Republican support yet, it's overwhelmingly popular with the voters and it was overwhelmingly popular with most Republicans up until about five years ago, um, just an indication of, um, you know, the political system in the United States is pretty badly broken now when we can't even pass legislation without tremendous difficulty that pretty much everybody wants.
0: All right. Um, so I I think that's that's um, that's that's a very, very insightful response here. Um, and it's certainly intriguing to think about the. Um, what we don't hear often um, in, in the United States um, is that we tend to seclude ourselves um, off from the rest of the world and and view our our economic problems and our, our political problems in, in an isolated context. Um, so it's certainly been very interesting to hear your your point of view um, relating that back to Scandinavia and to Europe um, and and seeing how um, we can we can look abroad to countries that have been successful or more successful in, in um, mitigating. Um, the sort of extreme partisan um, politics in their own political systems. So um, thank you for for bringing that to the show. I'm sure our viewers will will really enjoy listening to your take. And thank you for being on the show, Dr. Campbell.
1: Oh, it's very much my pleasure. Thanks right. for having me.
0: Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to The Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.